In Ezra chapter 3, we came across a, uh, a, the building of the altar and the beginning of building the foundations of what is going to be the rest of the temple. So when they start building foundations, we, see, we saw these warnings, we saw these things that were going on, we saw these interesting kind of moments of, um, of both warning and joy. So the overwhelming joy of everybody getting together, and remember there was this phrase that the old wept and the younger shouted for joy, and we saw this kind of mixed emotion as the temple was starting to be rebuilt, and it was so loud that it was heard from miles away. That heard from miles away comes into play in this chapter. So let's go Ezra chapter 4, and we're going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to focus only on six of the verses. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 5, and then verse 24. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But let's read the whole chapter here. Um, Let's go. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. (coughs) And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithrida and Tabiel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, the letter written in Aramaic and translated, Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, officials, the Persians, the men of Eric, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled... What a name. Just stop there. Isn't that great? Osnapper deported and settled the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is the copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who, have, who come up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem and they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city that they are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat of the salt of the place and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we will send and inform the king in order that such may be made in the book of the records, that a search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in that book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, 
and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rahum and the commander and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who lived at Samaria and in the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and a search has been made and it has been found that this city of old has risen against kings and the rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute and custom and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai and the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews of Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. Now, as we read this whole passage, we need to understand some things. First, the first five verses cover 15 years of time. And then verse 24. That's 15 years. The first five verses are 15 years of time. And then verse 24 um, covers the last, the, the last part of that 15 years. So that's from Cyrus to Darius, or if you're a real stickler and you're listening to me online and you're going to send me an email about how I mispronounce things, Darius, right? That's, that's how it's supposed to be said, but we're English and American, so Darius. So Darius uh, ends in his second reign. He restarts the work of rebuilding the temple. So for 15 years, it's covered here. There's 120 years, give or take, 120 to 140 years represented in verses 6 through 23. That's 120 to 140 years. Esther's story happens in this passage. Happens during this time period. Haggai, Malachi, Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah all prophesy during this entire section. They're spread out throughout this, this area, throughout this time. Uh, now, the second thing we need to understand as we approach this text is that it is giving us some instructions as to how to approach the world, how to live in a world that is contrary to the way that we live, how to live in a world that does not worship the same God we do. There's some principles that we can derive from the way that the Jewish people responded and from the way that that they responded, both positive and negative, that show us how we should live in this world. And then finally, we need to remember that all of this book, the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah, all of this is a shadow of what we delight in in Jesus. It is not the fullness, but is a shadow of what comes in Jesus Christ. It's the shadow of what comes in Jesus Christ. So let's deal with the shape of the text. Verses, verses 1 through 5, we have, uh, and verse 24, we have a 15-year delay of rebuilding the temple. So get this. They're all in the land. They start rebuilding. They have this shout. And what did you see in that very first verse? When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard, when they heard, they came. So this this is 15-year delay because people heard the shouts and praises and even mourning of the people of God. They heard the mourning and the praise of the people of God. And it causes a 15-year delay in the building. The next part, that middle section, is verses 6 through 23. And that middle section, again, is 120 to 140-year 
period, and we've got this wild, uh, just straight opposition for 120 to 140 years. There's just straight out opposition. These people oppose God, and it's in there for a reason. It's in there to show you, to show you that when you are rebuilding, when you are worshiping the Lord, there is always going to be opposition. When you strive towards holiness, there is always going to be difficulty and opposition. Someone is always going to fight against the worship of Yahweh. Same with Jesus. When you are worshiping Jesus, trying to live a holy lifestyle, there's always going to be push against it. There's going to be push from the people around you who are going to want you to compromise. There's going to be push from your family and friends who don't want you to be radical, but just kind of relax, be nominal like the rest of us. That There's going to be pushback for a long time. There's going to be constant pushback. This world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. The third thing here is we want to ask, why is this chapter structured this way? Why is this chapter structured this way? So first, we need to be reminded that the people of God will always have trouble. The people of God will always face trouble. Jesus promises us this in John chapter 16, verse 33. When you become a Christian, it says, in this world, you will have trouble. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation or trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, we live in a place where we have religious freedom. And that is beautiful and wonderful. And we should thank God for it every day. There are, there's no other place in the world where you get this kind of religious freedom. I want you to understand that. You have been born into a nation. You, have, you are living in a nation. You are living in a place where you have religious freedom to go and worship. You know that you can petition your government with the Bible and not be jailed? Did you know that you can, you can worship the Lord anywhere in this nation and they cannot throw you in jail for it legally? They can do it illegally. They can't do it legally. You have religious freedom here. So great is our religious freedom here that I am allowed to walk on as a pastor. I have the right and freedom to walk on to any institution that receives government funding for the purpose of Bible study so long as one person in that institution wants to hear. I have the freedom to walk into any institution as clergy because of the Equal Access Amendment laws that were passed in the 70s and 80s. That means that they technically cannot kick clergy off of any college campus that receives any kind of funding. They cannot technically kick clergy off of any public school grounds. Technically, that is illegal to do. Now, they do it. Don't get me wrong. I've gone to schools where they've told me, hey, you can't be here. You're not allowed. This is a closed... And they'll do the same thing. This is a closed campus. This is a closed campus. You can't be here. That gets solved real quick, by the way, just by going, do I need to contact a lawyer? And then they... They're, oh, no, no, no. Then they back away. Right? But this is... This is... They cannot remove clergy from campus. You live in a free society. Thank God for your freedom in this world, you will have trouble, though. And I believe that the trouble that comes here is often resulting in two different places. The first place that we tend to receive trouble is from nominal Christianity that is sick and tired of us being radical. Nominal Christianity that would tell you that you're being too pushy or you're, being, you're overbearing or you're not loving. You're not loving because you're telling people that sin is wrong. That's one of my favorite ones. Sin is wrong. We say sin is wrong. We appoint, we call it what it is. We, we point to it. We say this is sinful. And then somebody tells us we're not being loving. If anybody ever tells you that, this is a side note. If anybody ever tells you that, 
I want you to think about the image of a train coming towards somebody. And they're standing on the tracks. Is it loving to look at that person and go, hey, what you're doing is fine. Standing on the train tracks, you know, it's, it's you. I don't want to do that. You know, it's not, it's not good for me. You know, the Bible says this. It's not good for me to do that. But you, you know, I mean, it's you. To each and to his own. Is that loving? Or is it loving to go, hey, get off the tracks. You're going to die. Which one's loving? The second one, right? I hope nobody in this room goes, well, you should just let them on the track, right? You should just leave them there. I hope nobody is that foolish, right? We call people out of sin, out of darkness, into light. We tell people when they're sinning. We tell people what sin is because this is a matter of life and death. It's not a matter of them feeling good or being self-actualized or having their own personal uh, their own personal comforts. It's not even an issue of personal mental health. That is not what this is about. This is about salvation, life and death. There is one name under heaven whereby we are saved. There is one God who can save us, and Jesus Christ is his name. He died on a cross and rose again that we would have life that we would surrender to Him and our sin would die with Him. In order for sin to die with Him and for us to know that sin dies with Him, we have to actually give Him the sin. We have to actually believe, we actually have to know what sin is. (coughs) So if somebody tells you this is sin and points it to you in Scripture, repentance is the right attitude. Getting off of the train track is the right attitude. And that person is showing more love to you than anybody who just wants to walk with you through your decision-making processes. No, we call people away from sin. And as a result, the world will be angry. The second place where we find that we get tribulation and trial often in our culture is through spiritual battles. Anxieties, depressions, attacks of the adversary, severe mood swings that come out of nowhere, sudden circumstantial difficulties that send us into spirals. These are often, not always, often spiritual attacks that need to be addressed as such. In this world, you will have trouble. If you pursue holiness... You're going to have trouble. Second, why is this passage structured this way? It's to show us that the people of God will always face trouble. Second, is to show us that the world hates the plans of God. The world hates the plans of God. Understand, I'm not saying the world doesn't like the plans of God. I'm saying hates, despises, rejects the plans of God. The world and everything in it rebels against God. You were once part of that world. You were once sons of disobedience, delighting in the things of evil. But the scripture says he's transformed you and changed you. The world hates your plans of God. (coughs) Remember Jesus' words in John 15. If the world hates you, remember that it first hated me. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus has been hated by the world. Indeed, we once hated Jesus. Remember what Romans 5 says, you were enemies of God. Enemies of God. But Christ died for you. That you would have life. You would have life, in John 10, life more abundant. That abundant life is going to come with the world looking at you and going, you don't make sense, we don't like you, you're too much, you can't keep telling us that what we're doing is wrong, we want you to be away from us. The world hates you and will continue to hate you. This is the way of Christianity. Yay! Don't worry, there's more positive stuff coming. But to, to understand why Ezra is spending a whole chapter covering 140 years, the reason is so that you would get these truths. The people of God will always face trouble. The world hates you. And finally, the natural tendency of man is toward syncretism. 
The natural tendency of man is towards syncretism. That means blending together of the gods and of worship. That's part of the reason the world doesn't understand Christianity. Because the natural tendency of man is towards syncretism. Now, Ezra chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building the temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. So, let's go back one. So we see that they heard and they have come. And we've got our preface. We understand why he did this. We understand that the world hates us, that the world is going to hate the mission of God, that the world is going to give us trouble, and that the world tends towards synchronism. So let's think about this, these adversaries. Who are the adversaries? First, they're called the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. That ought to trigger something in your brain. Why Judah and Benjamin? That ought to trigger in your head. Why is it specific? Judah and Benjamin. And there's, there's a couple reasons. The first one being this is the northern and the southern kingdom. Benjamin being the most prominent tribe of the northern kingdom and Judah being the most prominent tribe of the southern kingdom. If you have any biblical understanding of history uh, and Israel's history, you know that when David became king, he murdered a man and slept with Bathsheba, which then made this, uh, started the downfall of Israel. And he's promised that it's going to split. And then Solomon becomes king and he reigns for a long time. But he introduces mixed worship and then you have the divided kingdom. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a bit. But you've got these two kingdoms. And in the north, there were ten tribes. And in the south, there were two tribes, Judah and Levite. And the Levites are down in the south because they don't have an inheritance. They live in Jerusalem. That's where they're supposed to be. And so they maintain worship there. And in the north, you've got all the other tribes. And the Benjamin is in the north. And Benjamin is a strong and noble tribe. They are the ones in Judges who rebelled against the rest of Israel, who started the civil war at the end of the book of Judges, and who uh, decimate the rest of the nation in Judges. <clears throat> they are a powerful, strong tribe. They're where the first king came from. Saul. King Saul, by the way, not a good king. King Saul shows up in Benjamin. Benjamin, the youngest of the brothers uh, of the twelve tribes. He is uh, prominent. So, you've got Judah and Benjamin. First, it's because they're northern and southern. So let's look at the adversaries of Judah. In Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10, we learn something about Judah. This is when Jacob is dying, and he gives a blessing to his sons. He gives all their names. And it says of Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched down as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall, shall, the, obedience, shall be the obedience of the people's. So we've got Judah first. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is going to rule. Judah is going to be king. And we know this. We know that there's multiple prophecies about someone from the line of Judah becoming king and being king forever. Even in Judah's blessing, what we'll see next is that there's a blessing in which he's going to become king. He's going to rule. In verse 8, he's a ruler over his brothers and even over his enemies. His hand is on their neck. They do what he says, what he ordains, what he, de what he decides. Judah is a ruler. That's who he's going to be. That's who the tribe was noted as being. David came from Judah. His sons all came from Judah. Judah is the king who's supposed to reign over all things. 
David is given the promise that a descendant of his will sit on the throne forever (coughs) and will rule. We know who that is. We know who that is. Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy. You've got 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. David is right in the middle. DVD, meaning 14. Matthew is highlighting the idea that Jesus comes from the line of David. He is the promised king who is going to rule. And we know that this is talking more about him than about Jacob's son Judah. Because I read the rest of Genesis. And Jacob's son Judah does not measure up. But Jesus does. And later on, when David is promised the king, David does not measure up. But Jesus does. And David's son Solomon does not measure up. But Jesus does. And Solomon's son does not measure up. But Jesus does. And all of the Judahites, the Judas who come later, do not measure up. But one does. Jesus. Jesus meets these requirements. He is ruler. In verse 9, he is a lion. He is the lion of Judah. In Revelation chapter 5, what's the image that we get? We get the lion of Judah has become the lamb slain for our salvation. I love that picture. You see in the book of Revelation, you've got this, everything's going wild in the room. And then John is like, oh no, who can save us? And the lion of Judah comes as a lamb slain. The lion has become the lamb and we have salvation in him. Trust in Jesus Christ and we find salvation. <clears throat> Second, he's the one with the, the rule, the authority. Look, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. There's some interesting translation stuff going on with that second half of that verse. But just note first, the scepter and the ruler's staff are his. They don't leave him. They don't leave him. This is important for Christians to understand. Jesus rules no matter what we see on the earth. Doesn't matter who is president. Doesn't matter which country's dollar or which country's currency is the best. It doesn't matter what economic powers have. Jesus is on the throne and he rules. He is king. There is none beside him. There is none over him. There is none who can stop him. He is the ruler. He holds the scepter. He has the ruler's staff. He is king over all. We see that Judah is the ruler. He's the lion. And he's the one with all the authority to rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. He has eternal rule. And then we've got this interesting phrase. Let's see, did I put it here? Yeah. We've got this interesting phrase here at the end. Until tribute comes to him, and until and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. There's this interesting phrase. It could, it could read, until <coughs> the scepter shall not depart from Judah, until he comes to whom it belongs. It can read that way. It can read, until tribute comes to him, can read, until he comes to whom it belongs. This idea that until Jesus comes, the scepter will not pass from the house of Judah. Until he comes, until the one to whom it belongs comes. And then we can read it like this as well. The second half of that last portion, it says, and to him shall the gathering of nations be. That portion that says, and to him shall the obedience of the people, shall be the obedience of the people. We can read it, and to him shall the gathering of nations be. You see, the gospel gives us this picture of the gathering of all nations to one tree. In Ezekiel, you've got this picture of all birds of all types flocking to one tree. In Isaiah, you've got people coming to a river, coming to the water of life, coming to the stump of Jesse, coming to the kingdom of God. In Jeremiah, you've got people coming to the fountain of living water from all nations, tribes, and tongues, coming to the fountain of living water. All through the prophets, you have this imagery of every tribe, tongue, and nation coming to Jesus. And that's what we see today. 
That's why we can have so many ethnic backgrounds and, and cultural backgrounds coming to one Lord, one Savior, one Master, living in one body together. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians, we are of one Lord, one God, one baptism, one Savior, one King. He is ours. We are one people. We are united together across cultural boundaries, across languages, across cultures, across worlds. We are united in Jesus Christ. Because there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, barbarian nor Scythian, We are all one in Christ. We have been united in Him. And that's the prophecy that's given of Jesus. When Jesus comes, all nations come. When Jesus comes, all nations come. And that's part of the reason Ezra is a shadow. Because in Ezra, what do we see? One nation. We see Israel building the walls. We see Israel building the temple. We see them building it. And there's a reason for it. Don't get me wrong. They're not wrong. Israel's not wrong in Ezra. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is it's a shadow of what was to come. The shadow of what's to come is that when we build the temple, when we are the temple, and according to Paul, we are the temple, and when we build the temple, it's not because of an edict of some foreign king. It's by the power of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Unlike Ezra, who had to have the edict of a foreign king in order to build the temple. And when we build the temple, it's not in the absence of a prophet, priest, and king. It's in the presence of the prophet, the priest, the king. So we see this, the adversaries of Judah come. But what do we have? Isaiah sixty-six eighteen. For I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. Isaiah 66, 18, Jesus will come and all nations will come and see his glory. He says also, uh, it is, is it too light a thing? And this is Isaiah 49, six through seven. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations and my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One to to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, holy one of Israel who has chosen you. And then again in Matthew 8, 11, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You get grafted in to the kingdom of heaven. You don't deserve it. You weren't born into it. You haven't done anything to earn it. You get grafted in and adopted into the kingdom because Jesus is good and kind. And because He loves. And for some reason, He loves you. You get grafted into the kingdom. In Isaiah 2.2, at the very beginning of the book, it says, It shall come to pass that in latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, or Mount Zion, shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. You have this picture of all the nations coming to Christ in Mount Zion. You have the nations coming in Zechariah 8.23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of the Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The Jewish nation here representing the the light of the world to all people. And that all people would come to salvation because Jesus who comes through the Jews, Jesus who comes through the Jews, offers salvation to all peoples.
offers salvation to all peoples. The adversaries of Judah are people who are adversarial to this promise. They're adversarial to this promise. They're adversaries of Judah. They're adversaries to the promise of salvation to all nations. Second, they're adversaries to Judah and Benjamin. They're adversaries of Benjamin. And and Benjamin, Deuteronomy 33 verse 12, gives us some insight into Benjamin. The beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. (laughs) Benjamin is protected by God. Benjamin is protected by God. He's a ruler. He's protected by God. He's the one who kings came through at the beginning. Saul is the first king and he's from the tribe of Benjamin. You've got this nobility in Benjamin. They're strong and they are for some reason protected by God. Now, there's a small application that we can derive from this. And that is that it doesn't matter how great or how horrible a person you are. God's love does not depart those he gives it to. You cannot find more than a handful of good Benjamites. You can't in Scripture. There's a couple, but you cannot find more than a handful of them. And yet God says this of the tribe of Benjamin in Deuteronomy. He says this, that they will be protected, that His presence is with them at all times. The the next thing to realize is that Benjamin, in the south of the kingdom any Benjamite was kind of assimilated into the tribe of Judah. So when Paul comes around and says, I'm, a, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, he is referencing this idea that philosophically and idealistically, Benjamin, the tribe, has been assimilated into the tribe of Judah. That it's kind of a co-reigner in some senses of the word. So Benjamin, historically... When Ezra says this, is assimilated somewhat into the tribe of Judah. Now, who are these adversaries? The adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. They are also the adversaries of Abraham's promise. They're adversaries of the promise of Jesus Christ, of the rescue, of the rulership and kingship of Jesus Christ. But I also want you to understand they're adversaries of the promise to the Jews that they would have a nation. They're adversaries to that promise that was given to Abraham. But not just that one, but also the spiritual promise that his descendants would be as the stars in the heaven, giving light to the night. That his descendants would be as the stars of the heavens and cover the earth. They're they're adversarial to that promise. They're adversarial to the idea that there's a nation that God has chosen to work through. They're adversary to to Abraham's promise which we see in chapter 12 of Genesis, verses 2 through 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I don't know where your uh, framework of... uh, Israel's history and Christian church history. I don't know where that lands. I know some of us have talked about it. They're great discussions, by the way. These are fantastic discussions to have. Please don't run away from them. Have these discussions. But where, where the prominence of Israel is and where those things... And I, it doesn't really matter where you land on that, except to understand this one thing, that throughout history, when people wrong Jewish people, it always goes bad for them in the long run. Jewish people are the only losers of history who get to write history. Let me say that again. Just historically speaking, Jewish people are the only people who lose constantly in history. They lose their country, they get beat, they get beat, they get exiled, they get destroyed, they get and yet For some reason, God has seen fit to allow them to preserve history from their perspective. Just consider that for a minute. And I don't know where you land, but just a word of caution. If this promise applies not just to believers in Christ, because we know that believers 
receive the blessing of Abraham on a spiritual level. But if this does apply to a national group, it's probably just safe to go, you know what, I'm going to do things that maybe, maybe even if I don't agree with that interpretation, maybe I'm just going to be careful not to vote policies into position that offend that national group of people who, for all practical purposes, should not have written history and did. Winners write history. You've heard that before. Winners write the history books. But the Jews historically have lost over and over and over again. And yet, history books are always written with them and from their perspective. Just just a side note when considering this. For our purposes, we want to understand that the, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin are adversaries to this. They're adversaries to the idea that Israel could be blessed by, with singular worship of Yahweh and therefore be a blessing to nations and rule. They are adversaries of that. They're adversaries of Benjamin and Judah. Second thing to note is that they heard. They heard the sound. The opposition comes. Now, just... Back to the adversaries of Benjamin and Judah. They, this world wants to be first. This world wants to be first. This is an application point for you. The world around you wants to be first. And when you tell them that they are not the main character in the story, that Jesus Christ is the main character, that the glory of God and the, the kingdom of God is the main point, and that it's for the glory of His name, the world is naturally going to shove against that and go, no, I am the most important. Beware when we think ourselves first. When we think of ourselves first. Beware when we think ourselves first. So second thing is that they heard. They heard. Uh, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, they came. So they heard and they came. Once they heard, so once they heard, they come. Beware of those who care nothing of your work that is done in quiet. Beware of those who care nothing of your work that that is done in quiet. Beware of those who are not concerned with your personal growth or your (coughs) growing as 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 a people or your delighting in the Lord. Beware of those who... Do not care if you grow personally, but only care when they hear about it. But only care when they hear about it. When the Lord begins to bless you as you follow Him, either financially, personally, spiritually, with health, with, with success, or with even with just comfort and confidence in the fact that He's the Lord. When the Lord begins to do that and people see and hear, beware of those who didn't care that you were worshiping Jesus before things started to go well. Beware of those. That's what these are. These are people who come and they are excited. Every attempt to be holy will stir up adversaries. Every attempt to worship the Lord will stir up adversaries, both Material, real, tangible people and spiritual adversaries will be stirred up when you begin to pursue holiness. I can testify that this happens all the time. A brother comes and confesses sin or, or deals with a, tr- a trouble and, and we talk it out and we start to work together to overcome that sin and immediately stuff starts happening. A brother commits himself to wanting to follow Jesus and immediately his family life starts to give trouble. I can tell you when I start to discipline myself to do things, my kids start to have difficulties emotionally, personally, and between each other. So by way of just encouragement, one of the things I have learned to do personally is that when I know I am pursuing something of God, and I start to see the people around me getting tense for no reason, having struggles for no reason, getting frustrated for no reason, my first reaction has become pray. 
pray. Because what does Jesus tell his disciples? The only way to cast this one out is by prayer. Often our victory is only found when we pray and submit to the Spirit of God and trust in Him. And if that's, the most, if that's a powerful thing, then I must believe it and I must practice it. And I will testify to the truth that when you pray, the enemy flees. And I don't mean like lighting candles and getting on your knees and doing some weird... I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a general... Lord, I don't know what's going on, but whatever it is, if there's something spiritual happening here, can you please enlighten me to it? Give me the tools to overcome it. Give my family peace and comfort. Let us rest a little bit. Lord, please intervene in whatever this, whatever's going on. And I'm ready. I'm focused. And, and I'm focused on you. I'm ready to take this. And I guarantee that you will find a lot of things that are stressful in your life start to melt away. Whenever you begin to pursue holiness, the adversaries come. It will stir up adversaries. Every attempt to pursue holiness will stir up adversaries. They heard and they came. Second thing, the adversaries, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, they heard, they came, and they claimed to be friends. They claimed to be friends. Did you notice? They claimed to worship the Lord. Oh, we've been worshiping this God the same as you. We worship the same God you do. We've been coming. Now, you need to understand that this is synchronism. They're not actually worshiping Yahweh alone. What they did was they came and they joined in. And we can see that in a couple different things. This, this syncretism has resulted <coughs> from historic roots. So they've been part of a synchronistic worship for a long time. Seventy years they've been a part of syncretistic worship. These people from Assyria came over, they met the Jewish God, and they said, we'll just add him to our gods. And we'll just worship him alongside our gods. This results from historical roots. Now, syncretism, I just, we live in a culture where we have Christian syncretism everywhere. So much so that we often don't recognize it. You see, the foundations of Christianity have been rocked by blending of culture into Christianity. So much so that we often don't recognize it. You can take time and study Gregory the Great. This is a fun church history thing for you. Gregory the Great, one of the great popes, the first great pope. He, uh, he was clearly a syncretist who added pagan worship into Christianity. And he doesn't beat around the bush about it. He tells you, yeah, I'm taking this from this place. I'm taking this from this place. We're doing this here. We're doing this here. He is adding to it. And this has crept down into the church. We have it everywhere. The questioning of the book of Genesis and its validity. The questioning of the book of Genesis and its validity. Because what? Science? No, because of theoretical thought by a guy named Darwin. Not science. Because of a guy who looked at two different types of birds and went, huh, I bet they came from the same place. Yeah, they're both birds. Of course they look like they came from the same place. They're both birds. Same guy who looked at the fact that monkeys have a skull and humans have a skull. Therefore, there must be a common ancestor. No. God made a monkey and God made a human. It's obvious if you'll accept that there's a creator. Genesis 1 through 11 makes sense. It does. Science makes up. Genesis makes sense. Science makes up. You can make up stuff to get these ancient evolutionary theories and backgrounds. And I understand. Get me. I was a pre-med major in college. with a, I was pre-med with a biochemistry major when I started. I understand that you have to speak the language in order to get through science. But when the church has sacrificed the foundations of biblical literacy for the sake of compromise, we end up with a watered-down gospel in the long run. And that's what we see in a lot of America, is a watered-down gospel because we have failed to take seriously what the Word of God said at the beginning and at the end. It results from historic roots, and the Jews were no different. So how did this happen? Well, Solomon compromised worship first. 
Jesus, or, or I'm sorry, David uh, is prophesied that the kingdom would split under his son, and Solomon compromises worship. He rebuilds the temple, but he also does this. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, two times. I showed up to you in person twice and you turned away from me and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But Solomon did not keep what the Lord commanded him. So how? First, Solomon compromises worship. The Lord was angry with Solomon. Uh, There you go. The, therefore, this is with Solomon. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since <coughs> this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days. I will tear it out of, your, of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it away. I will not tear away all of the kingdom, but will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. God says I will preserve one tribe, tribe of Judah. He's going to preserve that one tribe in the south. Awesome. God is preserving the line. I want you to note, God preserved Jesus' line all by himself. He didn't need any help to do it. He preserves that line all by himself. Solomon didn't even want to help. The people of Israel didn't even want to help. So, how? Solomon compromises worship. Then we have the kingdom splitting after Solomon under Rehoboam, his son. And we see the kingdom splits in 1 King chapter 12, verse 28. So, this is right after the king, kingdom splits. You've got the northern kingdom led by Jeroboam, the great general. And you've got the southern kingdom led by Rehoboam. Remember why the, king, why the kingdom split? Rehoboam takes over and then says, My father beat you with whips. My father made you build. I'm going to beat you with whips and make you do it twice as hard. So he's a horrible ruler and a tyrant and a dictator. So the northern king, the northern kingdom, ten tribes leave. And you've got Judah and Levi in the south and ten tribes in the north. So, and this is the first act of the king in the north. So the king, Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold. This should immediately jump you back to Exodus when Moses is on top of the mountain and Aaron, nervous, takes all the stuff from the people and he makes a calf. This should immediately drop you back to that and it should immediately make you go, oh no, this is twice as bad. Aaron only made one calf. Jeroboam makes two. Puts one at the southern side and one at the northern side. And he says to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. If the fact that he's building a golden calf wasn't enough for you, he quotes Aaron. Behold your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Remember, Aaron makes the calf and he says it comes out and he goes, Look, behold the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. (coughs) This cow, same thing. Same thing, same rebellion. And if you don't remember what happened, go back and read Exodus chapter 32 and 33 and really really read all of Exodus. But Exodus 32 and 33 is where you'll find this, this story happening. So Solomon compromises worship. The kingdom splits. And they compromise worship. And then there's a 200-year decline in Israel. So great is the decline that at the end of the, the book of Kings, the end of the second Kings, you have this wild thing that happens. They find the book of the law. How do you lose the one thing you're supposed to read? You know, the job of the king, he had one job according to the book of Deuteronomy. One job. Make a copy of the book of the law, read it to the people. That's his one job. For 200 years, they don't do it. How do you lose? How does does a nation become synchronistic? It happens when the people of God compromise. Happens when the people of God compromise and then the people of God are absent for 70 years and the only thing that has remained in the place is synchronistic worship so the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin and they heard and they claimed to be friends they claimed to worship the God and they are people of the land so these adversaries are also people 
of the land. If you see that here, it says, they heard the returning exiles were building the temple and they approached and they were the people of the land. They were people who belonged there. Verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They are the people of the land. This land belongs to them. This earth belongs to them. They belong here. That's what they're telling the Jews. Listen, I know you're trying to build a kingdom. I know you're trying to build your kingdom. And I know that rightfully God has given this land to you. But you know what? We've been here longer than you. And this now belongs to us. It's ours. That is what we are told as Christians on this earth. This doesn't belong to you. You don't get to, you don't get to be here. The truth is our God rules over all things. This is His. This earth is His. And that's why we have a commission in the garden from the beginning to cultivate the garden and make this earth a more better place. To make this earth more beautiful. That's why we have the commission. Because this belongs to the Lord. What is it Psalms 24 says? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to Him. It is not ours. It is not the, it is not the world's. This world does not belong to them. Though for a time... They are set free to run it. And though there are rulers and principalities and darkness that are running rampant, this is not theirs. They do not have the authority. Our Lord has the scepter and it will never depart from His hands. He is King. These are people of the land. The Israelites here are representing the people of heaven. The people of a greater kingdom that rules over this one. Likewise, we do too. Our worship is greater than this world. It's greater than this earth. (coughs) You are in this world, but not of it. You are sojourners in a land not your own. And yet, there will come a day when our King will return and restore the glory to this kingdom. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building the temple to the Lord God, they appeared, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. No, they don't. They synchronized. They they were synchronistic. And we have become, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ershadon, Esarhaddon, sorry, Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. (coughs) But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So the response that they are to give, the response that we give to the world when they say, Look, we're fine with you. Just Why don't you just give a little bit? The response we give to them is no. You see, the world is perfectly fine for you to have truth that they don't have to submit to. The world is perfectly fine for Jesus to be a truth, just as long as he's not the truth. The world is perfectly fine for Genesis to exist as a kind of religious book of history and poetry. But when you say it's the truth, then all of a sudden it's problematic. The world is perfectly fine with this and they want you to compromise those truths. They want you to say it's okay for them to have their truth and you'd have your truth. They want you to say it's okay for them to be whoever they want to be and for you to be whoever you want to be so long as you don't tell them that there's some way they were designed to be. They want... They're fine with you having a truth. They don't want you to have the truth. So what is our response to these people? First, purity of the temple. Zerubbabel tells them no. He tells them no. He says you can't build. This is a house to our God. The purity of the people of God matters. The purity of the temple matters. If you are going to come and worship 
the Lord, you do it by the means that the Lord has given and the regulations by which the Lord has stated for you to worship. So, when you go to a church service, you ought to see the people having biblical warrant and reason for the things they do. You ought to see biblical warrant and reason for the things they do. If a church is appealing (coughs) to the world, there is something wrong. If a church doesn't challenge the sensibilities of the world, there is something wrong. The Bible brings adversaries. The word and the truth brings adversaries. So there ought to be a bit of discomfort. We are not going to synchronize. We are not going to change the way we do things in order to make the world more comfortable. We are going to have a purity of temple, of worship. We're going to have a purity. Purity of worship is in the temple. Second thing is purity of people is in the temple. We want purity of worship, we want the truth, and we want purity of people. We don't just want a truth, we want the truth. We want purity of people, and we want a purity of the proclamation. Look, you have nothing to do with us and our God. We are going to proclaim the truth. We are going to do these things. And the proclamation by which Ezra was, was standing on, the proclamation by which Zerubbabel was standing on, was the truth that Cyrus had given them warrant to do this. And then last, we proclaim Jesus Christ. Our proclamation is that Jesus Christ has called us and commissioned us to give the gospel to the world. And so the world will see him. The world will be fine with you as a truth. But when we say that there is one truth, they will do these things. They will discourage your hands. They will intimidate your hearts. They will cheat your processes. And they will frustrate your hopes. You see all of that right here in verse 4. The people of the land discouraged the work of the hands. That should read, the, the people of the land discouraged the hands of Judah. That's what it should say. That's the, direct, the di- more direct translation. The, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed their counselors against them and frustrated their purposes all the days of King Cyrus of Persia, even into the reign of Darius of Persia. They will discourage your hands. They will intimidate your heart. They will cheat your processes and they will frustrate your hopes. So what is our response? What is our response? Paul gives us a great one in Romans 8. And I just wanted to end by reading this passage. So if you have a Bible in front of you, this is a good one to open to. Romans 8, 18 through 39. I'll have it up here, but you can open it if you got it. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glories that is to be revealed to us. In the midst of a world pressing against you, in the midst of a world that is trying to discourage, intimidate, overwhelm, and defeat, listen to Paul. Listen to him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the trials, the turmoils, the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, But because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, (coughs) the redemption of our bodies, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers 
And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's our answer to this world. The grand plan of God that every tribe and tongue and nation would come before Jesus that Jesus rules and that nothing can separate us from Him. Nothing. Father, we love You and trust You. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy among us. Thank You for life. As we come to communion together,